Hello and welcome to the EMS On Air podcast. The mission of this podcast is to get the latest COVID-19 pandemic information out to first responders as efficiently, effectively, and clearly as possible. Today is June 1, 2020. I'm Jeff Lassers, and I'll be your host. After a week-long break, the EMS On Air podcast crew is back, and we're excited to be here. Today, Bonnie and I are joined once again by our friends Dr. McGraw and Dr. Faust to provide an update regarding the status of the pandemic and talk about how things are going for EMS and hospitals. Then we get into a discussion about the value of serology testing, as long as it's the right kind of serology testing. We also mention when you can get tested right here at the OCMCA this week, if you'd like. We finish off the podcast with an overview of multi-system inflammatory response syndrome in children, or MISC, and list recommendations for EMS providers. According to the CDC, MISC is a condition where different body parts can become inflamed, including the heart, lungs, kidneys, brain, skin, eyes, or gastrointestinal organs. We do not know yet what causes MISC. However, we know that many children with MISC had the virus that causes COVID-19 or had been around someone with COVID-19. MISC can be serious, even deadly. If MISC is suspected, EMS providers should strongly encourage immediate evaluation by an emergency physician at the closest hospital. Life-threatening complications can result in pediatrics and young adults leading to heart failure, severe shock, and sudden death. On May 15, 2020, the OCMCA released EMS Advisory 053, which provides an overview of MISC, as well as guidance for EMS. That advisory, along with all other OCMCA EMS advisories, is available on the OCMCA EMS Protocols app and the Oakland County Med Control website, OCMCA.org. If you are an EMS provider in Oakland County, I highly recommend that you download the Protocols app, which you can always download for free at the Apple App Store and Google Play. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, or ideas to qi at OCMCA.org and visit OCMCA.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. Follow us on Instagram at EMS on Air and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a rating and a review. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. Well, Dr. McGraw, why don't you lead us off? Can you please provide us an update and describe the impact on EMS and hospitals over the last few weeks? Hey, good morning, Jeff. Sure. You know, we've seen, as we described a couple of weeks ago, sort of a general downtrend in our prevalence of our communities served in Oakland County. It hasn't gone to zero, unfortunately, but it's a, a prevalence that I think does not in any way threaten our ability to function as an EMS system. And our hospitals similarly now have capacity so that they're even, in every case virtually, starting to do semi-urgent and more elective type surgical procedures. That all started on the 29th of May in accordance with the executive orders from the governor. What's really important about that is I think it'll reassure our communities and our patients and our medical staffs that we are safe places to receive care. If you can have your knee operation or your hysterectomy or your gallbladder removed, you can come to us with chest pain and you can come to us with the worst headache of your life or signs of a stroke, all the things that we know people have been, in some cases, delaying their presentation to the hospital. So those numbers trend well. It's not universal across Michigan. Frankly, some all parts of our state have seen sort of a slow burn, a kind of a leveling of the graph, not really a significant spike 
but not a trend towards zero either. So it's going to be important to watch as our state starts to open up more and more that people's social distance and really wearing masks is so critically important. You don't think so uh, necessarily if you're hanging out outside, but sometimes you're outside for a while and then you go into a store or you go into a, a gathering where people are located. And it's really just important to have a mask on your person so you can protect them and yourself. I, I really can't stress enough that to avoid communities getting into trouble, we're going to all have to be very diligent about our distancing and wearing masks as we go forward. Then we can continue this recovery that we're all so anxious to enjoy. That's pretty much how we're, we're looking at it from EMS, but I'm certain Dr. Faust wants to talk in broader terms, too, about our state, our county, and the nation. Well, first, I just want to emphasize what Dr. Agron just spoke about and thank him for that perspective. I think we all are looking forward to things being less locked down, and the only way that will continue is if we do wear a mask when we're out and about, maintain social distancing as much as possible everywhere we are, and, you know, show respect for those around us when we go out by wearing a mask. It's the only way that we'll get through this without being locked down again as things open up. You know, I drive around and I see backyard pool parties and such. Nobody's got a mask on and we're just asking for trouble doing these things. Just an update. As of this morning, we have 8,400 cases in Oakland County, but... 6,724 recovered now, documented recovers. Michigan cases, 57,397, 38,099 recovered as of two days ago. Nationally, 1.76 million, well over 100,000 deaths. Don't know the national number for recovered. Fortunately for us in Oakland County, we are on the far side of the curve. We see fewer cases every day in our emergency rooms and being intubated. Fortunately for us, we are prepared if we do have a second spike or peak. But as people go out and about, are wearing masks, are maintaining social distancing, are washing their hands frequently, I don't think we'll be overwhelmed as we were, say, mid-March, toward the end of March. We're prepared. We do have PPE now. We do have masks when people go out. We have high-level masks and face shields and protection for our frontline healthcare providers in the ED and on ambulance rigs and firefighters and rescue teams. So I think we're in much better position now than we, we had been a couple months back. I'm encouraged by that, and I'm encouraged to see all these um, recovered numbers increasing day to day. Thank you very much. Part of the update, what's going on around the entire nation is an increase in serology testing, especially here in Michigan and in Oakland County, Michigan. Why should the community and or EMS providers undergo serology testing? So bottom line, what is the impact or benefit that can be produced from this? You know, Jeff, anybody that is interested in their presence or absence of antibodies, I encourage them to obtain a serology test. They are widely available now. The caution, however, is that if you have antibodies, it doesn't guarantee, as far as we know right now, that you're immune. We have to be realistic that this doesn't tell us that yet, but it would be wonderful for knowing the prevalence of those of us in this industry that have sort of been out on the front lines to know what our situation is. I will just tell you, I had my serology tested and I have no antibodies, even though there were days in March and April when I was taking care of many, many patients, floridly ill. And what that tells me is that the equipment works, our process works, and it gives me great confidence in recommending the science of that equipment to others. 
But for those that similarly took care of people or just want to know if they developed antibodies, I think it's a valid thing. Just please don't say, well, I have antibodies, so now I don't need to be careful. That, I think, would be an enormous mistake. That's been a big thing that I learned from this. And when I've engaged with people in conversation recently, talking to somebody, a family friend, they said, oh, well, I have antibodies. And I made sure that before we ended the conversation that they knew the context of what an antibody is, especially when it comes to COVID-19. This does not necessarily mean that you're going to be protected. Now, hopefully, the presence of antibodies means something fantastic, and we find that out. But Dr. Faust, what's your take on the benefit or impact that can be made from massive amounts of serology testing? There are just too many unknowns at this point. The fact is there are multiple serology tests being evaluated right now. All of them are investigational. That is, they're part of a clinical study. They're IRB approved. They're all investigational. And we don't know for any of these serology tests, that is the quantitative IgM, IgG tests that are being done right now requires a blood draw, requires spinning it down, having the, the lab quantitatively tighter IgM and IgG antibodies, presumably to COVID-19. We don't know what the cross-reactivity is. There's a couple unknowns here that are very important to keep in mind. We don't know how much cross-reactivity there is between these antibodies and other coronaviruses. That is, of the more than four or 500 species of coronavirus, we know that there are multiple shared proteins. We're not sure yet whether some of these proteins or some of these antibodies recognize surface proteins of the other coronaviruses that are out there in addition to COVID-19. The fact is, every single one of us, every single person listening, has been infected with other coronaviruses. The four most common coronaviruses are responsible for the common cold. We've all had a cold. We don't know yet whether these antibodies to COVID-19 also recognize those viruses. So the fact is, if you have antibody levels in one of these serology tests, we're not sure whether it's from being infected or exposed to COVID-19 or whether it's potentially another coronavirus. We don't know yet yet. Hopefully, it's specific to COVID-19. But again, we don't know that yet. And then, as Dr. McGraw pointed out, even if it's specific to COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, we don't yet know whether it's protective at all. That is, I know I have antibodies to other coronaviruses, but it doesn't keep me from getting the common cold year after year after year. Presumably, they're protective somewhat. Maybe without those, I would get a really nasty cold and end up in the hospital. I don't know. But hopefully, these antibodies that we detect are, one, specific, and two, protective. That is, provide immunity to future infection by SARS-CoV-2, prevent me from getting another COVID-19 infection. We don't know yet. At the very least, we hope that it provides some level of protection. That is, once I've had COVID-19, I have antibodies to COVID-19, and perhaps I may get infected again, but maybe it'll be a less severe infection. We just don't know. It's a whole lot of unknowns here. That does not decrease the value of knowing whether or not you have these antibodies. We just can't answer those questions until we start getting this test and we move forward. We may not know all these answers for another six or 12 months, but we need to have the data. If I could just refine the very end point there for my colleagues out there in the EMS field, the more bodies we test under the large spectrum of our community, people that are just living in the community as normal citizens and people in the community like myself, 
that are going on lots of EMS calls, once we have a huge pile of data to go through, we can then say, to what degree, if any, do we get protection? And the bigger the number, the easier it is to get to that, those questions answered, correct? That's largely true, Jeff. And the other thing is it gives epidemiologists something that we haven't been able to obtain prior to this. Because we didn't test people with any regularity, didn't have the test to provide to them at the beginning of this, when so many were getting ill, the actual number of the prevalence in our community was always very elusive. We just never had a handle on anything close to the denominator. So for things as important as the case fatality rate, or what elements of our community, while maybe vulnerable, have been exposed and survived. It gives us a lot of information that we can learn how to approach this in the fall or or later on if we have additional cases. We have a much better foundational experience with which to make decisions about activity. Does a part of a community need to go into some sort of modified stay at home or whatever? We just don't know because we don't have, we didn't have that testing in the beginning. So by doing a status assessment of our antibody response now, it gives us at least some basis of that denominator. Where should I go or who should I contact in order to get serology testing? So serology testing is being done at different locations. There are some being done at CVSs around the area, but it's something you would have to look up or call in order to find out whether your CVS is doing serology testing or your doctor's office. So for the lay public, that's where you would want to go. For EMS and first responders in general, we are going to be doing serology testing at our office, the OCMCA building in Oakland County, June 4th. 5th, 6th, 8th, and 9th, from 5 a.m. till 2 a.m. on all of those days. So all you have to do is get the link that I've sent out to all of the EMS coordinators and be able to go on, register, and then come whenever it's convenient during those hours. So this serology testing is an actual blood draw. It's not like the ones that were out there in the beginning where it was just a finger stick. So this is going to be quantitative, not qualitative. But the data is going to be very important because it's actually going to be studied. So that's the important part for our first responders is to get that blood and study it. And then you find out whether you do have antibodies. I really really want to caution everybody. You say, unlike the, the little finger poke tests that were being done early on, I have to say they're still being done. That's a true. lot of urgent cares are still doing them. A lot of the physicians' offices are still doing that. When people call and say, I want an antibody test, this is what they're doing. You know, they purchase these things, and there's thousands and thousands of them out in the community. And I still fear that that's the most commonly offered test is the little finger poke, drop of blood on the card. I want to caution people, that is not what we're talking about here. That is a useless test. You know, that's a great point too, Russ. If they're not having, they, they can distinguish very easily between the two. If they don't take a tube of your blood that clots and is spun down, it's not a serology test. It's one of these lateral flow point of care tests that have virtually no FDA approval. And if they do have an EUA, it's very tenuous. So I don't recommend them. I tell people not to go to their doctor's office if that's what they're being offered to get serology. And that's where the blood is drawn with a needle out of your arm spun in a tube, and you won't get the results. And when you do get the results, they come back with an actual numeric value, a quantitative number that tells you your level of... Yeah, a titer. 
Yeah, they'll provide you with a titer, not just a, a positive or negative. I'll, I'll tell you that I have confirmed COVID-infected employees here in county, and I've run three different rapid antibody tests on them, and those are absolutely unreliable. They were junk, and they were just people making money. And you're right too, Russ, because some of these practices bought a whole bunch of them, and now they're saddled with that cost. They're actually trying to recoup some of their losses, which isn't helpful because in the end, all it's really doing is misleading people. Agreed. More than 100 companies making those quick antibody tests. None of them are diagnostic, number one. None of them are FDA approved for routine clinical use. And the fact is, they're making false claims. That is, virtually all of them come with a a pamphlet, or at least they're trying to sell you using a brochure that says they can diagnose COVID-19. They're not diagnostic for COVID-19. You know, a year from now, when the FDA gets around to pursuing prosecution of these companies, they'll be gone. They will have made their millions. They'll be bankrupt and gone. They'll be living in Cancun. So, You also make a great point too, Russ, and that is that if they were diagnostic, hospitals would be using them. Yeah. But, but, we but, don't but use, yeah, we would never use to them. To be clear, the, the true serology test requiring a blood draw that provides antibody titers, that's not diagnostic for COVID-19 either. It's not not a diagnostic test. It's just looking at history of infection. We agree with you. And and that's why in our hospital, we're still using the tests that detect the presence of the RNA, the PCR test from the nasal oral pharynx. That's the the one reliable test we have for acute infection. Yeah. Uh, Recently, we put out an EMS advisory 053 that is guidance to EMS providers on multi-system inflammatory response syndrome in children. I've had very little education on this so far. The only thing I've seen of it is this EMS advisory. And for those of you listening, when a med control such as Oakland County has information that doesn't really apply to a protocol, and we don't really want to just put it in an email, we create an EMS advisory which gets put on the OCMCA website and is then blasted through the Oakland County protocol app. Now that protocol app informs you as well by having a notification process that says, hey, here's an EMS advisory. All 3,000 of our EMS providers then have access to that and they can see this information. So that's what an EMS advisory is. Specifically this one, Bonnie, as the person who facilitates the creation and the distribution of our EMS advisories, can you give me a little background on this? And then Dr. McGraw, I'd like to hear a little more detail on what this thing is. So the advisory went out after a couple of meetings with the state talking about pediatric patients that had COVID now seeing multi-system inflammatory response, kind of like uh, Kawasaki. What happens is these children, days later, even sometimes weeks later, can come up with these symptoms. Most likely, it's going to start with a fever, and if this fever doesn't go away within a couple of days, that's when you start needing to look at other syndromes and possibly MISC. So that's why we put out the EMS advisory for our providers to be on the lookout for these types of children. You know, I would like to hear from Dr. Faust about both its presence and sort of the initial recognition. I will tell you, I'm, I'm very stunned that this has sort of made this appearance in our community. We do have it in Michigan. I will tell you that in my entire career, I've seen Kawasaki's less than five times, and that in, includes residency. So Kawasaki syndrome is almost a, a hyperimmune response to a, you know, an infection, typically uh, either a bacterial or viral infection. 
but it's it's very difficult to mistake because it is so striking in children. But I'd love to, I'll talk a little bit more about the clinical side if Dr. Faust wants to talk a little bit about what we know about it from a community standpoint. I can tell you that in New York and New Jersey, they've got over a couple hundred cases. They've got another couple hundred cases that are under investigation as of last Thursday. Looking around at all of our resources, I can't come up with actual numbers here. I know that down at Children's, they've seen at least 20 cases as of last week, but I don't know the statewide or countywide numbers that we have. I think that with COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, there are folks that have intact immune systems, let's say adults. The suspicion now is that this cytokine storm is responsible for the mortality or significant severe complications. You know, when you talk to the Italians and they look at their fatalities, they don't find anybody with immune suppression or incompetency um, from cancer or iatrogenic medical immune suppression. They don't find that those folks are uh, at risk for the fatalities. It's folks that have an intact immune system that are really at greatest risk. If we kind of extrapolate that to the kids, the ones that are a week into a COVID-19 infection, similar to the adults with their cytokine storm, I think this may be how it presents in children. Again, great unknown. We don't have the answers yet. We don't fully know what's going on there. You know, CDC says that basically there are three requirements. It's, it's fever, inflammation, kind of in a general sense, and at least two organs affected. Despite being a, a pediatric specialty surgeon, I've only seen Kawasaki a few times, maybe two or three times in 20 or 30 years. For COVID, Kawasaki, I think kind of a diffuse or generalized inflammation can be manifest with bloodshot eyes, dry cracked lips, bright red tongue. These things are easily visible. Many have this rash, swelling of hands and feet, and extreme exhaustion, very similar to the adults that have the more severe symptoms with COVID-19, extreme exhaustion. Right now, it is a reportable disease or a reportable syndrome in state. So I think we should begin to have uh, numbers fairly soon, sometime this week. I think it is being found, especially in those communities that had large prevalence of COVID-19. I will tell you that children that present this way really need to be identified early. What we found is that the rapid administration of supportive care, like IV fluid for shock, anti-inflammatory steroids for the attenuation of their immune response and their, their inflammation, directly impacts their recovery from this. It needs to be identified early, and our, certainly our EMS providers can identify some of these findings. The bloodshot eyes and the bright tongue, the diffuse rash, and the sudden onset of fever, I think are some of the, the real stark things you see in Kawasaki's disease, or in this case, MISC. When we relay that to the emergency department as we arrive with these patients, we're putting the, uh, the idea into the differential diagnosis. Because a lot of physicians are just like Dr. Faust and I. We don't see a lot of Kawasaki's in general. So the human tendency is to not recognize something that is different from what you're typically encountering. And in this way, if you guys raise the possibility, it'll hopefully help us to identify it as rapidly as well. Because these children, if supported, do well. If not supported, it can have devastating, even fatal outcomes. So uh, certainly airway management, 
IV fluid for shock, and once they're suspected of it, administration of the appropriate medications to help attenuate the inflammation. We've mentioned Kawasaki a few times. So MISC is a COVID-19-based Kawasaki, essentially? I think the understanding is that from the pathology, it is very similar in its manifestations as kids that have traditionally been labeled Kawasaki's, but it's a widespread inflammation of the lining of the blood vessels, heart, and other organs. And the manifestation of that is these abnormal findings you see in the physical exam, as well as sometimes shock, respiratory failure, or both. Among the things that are pretty clear is that children that are managed in pediatric centers with aggressive management of their shock, of their inflammation, and of their airway, they should do well. In fact, what's really striking to me is their heart functions can be very impaired on arrival. A week or two later, their cardiac functions have improved dramatically, almost back to normal. There's a lot of hope, but again, it really hinges on people including that in their sort of understanding of the differential diagnosis they're encountering. How much of this our EMS providers will obviously see, I, I just can't predict. But if they do see someone that they suspect of this, it's great to relay that information. I do want to emphasize that this isn't classic COVID-19 kind of symptom profile, right? And so there are just so many people with whatever, abdominal pain or chest pain or anything else avoiding the ED. And we do want to encourage people, as Dr. McGraw started out, Uh, emphasizing, we do want to encourage people to get seen for their so-called routine complaints again, that, you know, hospitals are safe places to go to now, EDs are safe places to go to, you know, there's just too many people with chest pain and abdominal pain not going in. Thank you for that. We know that they're not, some of them aren't doing well. And to to your point, I think we've made it very clear to people that COVID-19 is a serious disease, but now we have to make it clear to them if they come to the hospital, they will be segregated away from that. They, they won't come to the hospital with a hernia and get COVID-19 when they arrive. We'll keep them safe by keeping them away from people we suspect do have it. Thank you to Bonnie, Dr. McGraw, and Dr. Faust for your time today. And thank you all out there for listening. Please continue to email your questions, comments, feedback, or ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at emsonair and subscribe, leave a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you use. Thanks for listening to the EMS On Air podcast. Stay safe and have a great day.